0: Welcome to this edition of the 401k and Beyond podcast. This is the longer form edition, where we have meaningful discussions with folks in and around the investment community. Here is your host, Brian Williams.
1: I was really excited to have Chantal Sheiks join us from the US Chamber of Commerce. We talked a lot about retirement plan lawsuits. There's been a ton filed over the last few years, some with merit, some without. But ultimately, it's my role to take some of these issues that have led to big plan lawsuits and make sure that the best practices filter down into the local bakery with five people to make sure that these small plans have the same advantages that big plans have, but also avoid some of the pitfalls. As you may have picked up from other episodes, that passion to help these small business also translates into helping a lot of small business organizations like Chambers of Commerce. So this is sort of... One of those World Collide episodes where you're getting a little bit of activity from the Chamber of Commerce world and also from the retirement plan world. That also leads us into today's sponsor.
0: Do you work for a Chamber of Commerce? Need help getting your digital marketing ideas done? Hi, I'm Izzy, and I have chamber-specific, done-for-you services and DIY tips at theizzywest.com.
1: This is Brian Williams from 401k and beyond. We're excited about today's show. We're going live with Chantel Sheiks, and we're uh, she's joining us from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. She is Vice President of Retirement Policy. And before we came live, we were just talking about what an exciting last three years it's been as we go through the timeline from association retirement plans to the first SECURE Act, and then we went into, obviously, the coronavirus, followed by the CARES Act, and now we're Potentially knocking on the door of Secure Act Two and throw Peps in the mix. So, good morning. How are you? I'm um, busy. <laughs> busy. I know. But I know one thing you won't be doing today, which is going to Opening Day for the Nationals, as they, as you got a rainy, drizzly uh, across the country. It's an issue for Opening Day, so getting a lot of postponements already.
0: Well, fingers crossed. Hopefully, the storms will be out, and we'll see what happens.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I've, so I've seen a lot of your, your content and, and you're, you're very big on the big picture stuff right down through the chambers, right down to helping small businesses, which is exciting. What prompted this particular uh, discussion was based on some briefs that you filed um, to talk about the excessive retirement plan fees, lawsuits, which have really exploded over the last two or three years. Some with merit, some without. Um, I want to talk, Before we get into that, which could probably get a little bit technical, you know, small business retirement plans. We're talking about the the local locksmith or, or Baker. You know, over the last few years, they've been focused on so many other issues. Why is now the right time for some of these organizations to look at retirement benefits for their employees?
0: Well, I think, well, personally, just because I do this for a living, I think the right time is always now. But if you think about it, even bigger picture is one of the things we're working on at the chamber overall with most of our members is the worker shortage. Mm. And so what can you do as a small employer? We know know it's difficult sometimes for small employers to really compete with with other employers. But people are wanting that differential. They want that factor. And so it's not just good for your employees. It's also going to be good for you as an and something to attract employees right now
1: right and and to keep them too there's a lot of employee turnover mm-hmm. even the number of no-shows is amazing i talked to small businesses that say yeah we hired somebody last thursday to start on monday and they and they never even showed up so certainly adding a more robust benefit package can can hopefully help with that
0: oh exactly and it's also there to help to plan for the future which one of the things I think what employers can do to help their employees, but no matter what your size is, it's very difficult. I know I can't even think about what I'm gonna to do tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So the role of the employer is really to help that employee to think not just right now, but five, 10, 15 years down the road and using a retirement plan as a tool is one of those things that you can do
1: right and one of the things that's been most exciting to me in in my career is the shift from 401k and and workplace retirement accounts from being a product to now really it is more of a service right it's more of workplace financial wellness and i know the the industry and the u.s chamber has um, made a lot of uh, you know expresses how important that is to small businesses too oh definitely the um Going back to association retirement plans, and then we had Secure Act, which had some significant tax credits, So, um, and it was a really exciting time. And then we walked right into uh, the brick wall of the coronavirus as, as local chambers and small businesses were, uh, of course, focused on other things like keeping their employees and, and staying open. Um, do you feel like now you're starting to see some momentum with that pick back up again?
0: I think people are, are in the process of starting to think about it. But again, you know, we need other people to help. It's not something whether it's a small business, whether it's an association. You can't just say, look, I have a retirement plan right now. So I always like to take, say that the retirement plan, it's a community because it takes a community to build up a retirement plan, which is the good thing about this community is that we don't make it seem that way. So for our employees, it seems like it's just magic and it just kind of appears there and money goes from their paycheck over, it grows over a lifetime and there you have it. But I think that it's going to take a, you know a lot more for the community to start outreach. But we're seeing that is that, again, like with anything, you have to take care of your immediate needs before you can take care of your future needs. And once we start taking care of more of those immediate needs, I think that we can start going forward.
1: Right, I agree with that. I mean, the retirement plan, that's never a, front of the burner issue for small businesses, it's always, you know, healthcare is usually a priority or anything we've had to deal with over the last couple of years is going to be, um, now you've got, you've got state plans requiring it. You've got state mandates coming out. So maybe that'll start to push it to maybe but more of what, an immediate issue.
0: One thing I think that has made it more of an immediate issue and that with, a, the past two years is emergency savings and mm. the need for emergency savings and the interplay, and there are a lot of different, it's, it's interesting is what we're supporting is, there's a lot of different legislation that's going on in Washington about emergency savings, a lot of different talks, should it be a sidecar, should it be in plan, should it be whatever it might be. Our view is we want as many options as possible because some options may be easier for a large employer, some might be easier for a small employer, for example, where you could just have an in plan distribution. Some people may not think it's optimal because of leakage. However, if you're a smaller employer, you may not have that bandwidth also to be able to set up the emergency savings or the sidecar, but you know what you can do best. And so another thing that I think why now is kind of the right time for employers who may not have a retirement plan or who haven't looked at their retirement plan is because what we saw during the pandemic is Mm -hmm. Americans need to save. And it's not just for retirement but it's for that emergency savings. And the way we look at it is if you look at the here and now of what you need for your emergency savings, that gets people who may not have been saving before in the habit of saving. And so once you hit that emergency savings, it's not really gonna, you're already in that habit. So that money can just then go easily over to your retirement plan. So it's getting people in that habit. And this is, you know we saw what happened. So let's not have that happen again.
1: Right. And and you've had 401k plans have loans and hardships and those type of provisions over time. But I think something that's, you know, maybe having the first even thousand dollars or two thousand dollars being readily available, you know, without penalty, without tax con- uh, consequences. I think that might be a good option for for a lot of folks.
0: Oh, definitely. And again, we don't think there's a one size fits all because there's not. But we do know the need for, I was joking with some friends of mine, they're like, oh, why are you calling emergency savings? It's just savings. People need that buffer, whatever it is before, but this will get people started in the habit.
1: Right. And the, and the 401k is just, it's just so easy to save through the workplace. I mean, you know, those numbers about, mm-hmm. you know, people are far more likely to save through their paycheck before it even comes to them, right? The idea of having it come to their checking account and then Having a draft or even writing a check somewhere else just doesn't happen.
0: if I don't see it, I don't miss it.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, with these lawsuits that we've, we've that we've seen over the last few years, so mm-hmm. so the U.S. Chamber here, and I'll, I'll share the this, this screen quick here to the Bloomberg article. So they're calling it a, a unique court strategy. Would you consider this a unique court strategy?
0: I think for for us, it is a little bit unique. Typically speaking, we file in the um, appellate courts and the Supreme Mm -hmm. Court. We have very robust uh, practice there. We don't often file as much in the district court because you're not sure what the outcome is, is that if you file in the district court and file in the appellate court. Um, For those of you who haven't done litigation, um, just I will say as default, I'm I'm a recovering attorney, I'm a recovering litigator. I think I'm on step number four right now, but you know, this keeps pulling me back into the the litigation and my attorney life. But some of these cases can go on forever. Mm-hmm. I did have one case that I was involved in that went on for 12 years. Wow. And then it was remanded back down to the district court. So then it went on, I think, some, the longest risk case I've ever, ever knew about was 17 years. So wow. you, yeah, they, they, they take some time. Um, you could have your child born and go to college by the time the case is resolved. <laughs> but what we're trying to do and you normally don't see i think i should step back a little bit when yep. i first started practicing and i'm not going to say when because it's a very long time ago is you would see an individual individual claims it's probably over the past four or five years that you just saw these class action claims that are coming up and so what's happening what we started seeing with all these class actions coming because usually, why we wouldn't file in the lower courts because it would be one case, and then it would it would be done. But now, what we're seeing is I think uh, uh, BNA has done uh, aging myself again. Bloomberg has done a great job of collecting all of these cases. You know, we're seeing over two hundred cases filed, mm-hmm. and I believe it was back in twenty fifteen when I first saw this. When I saw a plan that only had ten million dollars in assets because these started with the jumbo plans, the massive plans, the massive employers. And now we're seeing, I think one that really surprised us all where we did file was the Red Cross, Mm. is that no one is safe. It doesn't matter if you're small, it doesn't matter if you're large. And so that's when we started thinking, well, what can we do about this? Because for many people, and I know many of your clients and many of our members, if I say the word ERISA, everybody gets scared. They think it's the most complex, the most frightening thing in the world. I mean, it can be. I've, I've read most of it. But what the plaintiff side is doing is they're using the perceived complexity to try to get settlements. And what we were afraid of is, again, I do try to look at everything from the bigger picture, is that this isn't just one case. This is having an industry impact. And it's having a big impact and especially it's going to have on some of our smaller employers because what we're seeing now is with the insurance industry, you have to insure your plan. You just have to. But what happens if you can't get insurance? And because of all these cases and these cases settling, the insurance premiums have gotten a lot higher and the deductibles have gotten a lot higher. So often people will think that this is like a victimless crime because well, it's just the insurance company that's paying for it. Well, ultimately, somebody does pay for it. And if you're a smaller employer and you see the premiums going up, or even if you're a large employer, the premiums are going up, the deductibles are going up. Money's fungible. It has to come from somewhere. And that means it might be, well, maybe the match won't be as robust. Mm-hmm. Maybe we won't pay the administrative fees. So on that bigger picture, that's really what we were looking at. And, Also, I'll get into a little bit of the course if you want, but that's part of the big part of the reason why we decided to do this.
1: Right. And it's the unintended consequence of where these might have started with good intention. We're trying to lower plan fees. We're trying to um, make these organizations more accountable for their fiduciary roles. At the same time, it might end up having the opposite effect where because of the costs of ERISA bonds or fiduciary liability insurance, those costs end up being pushed back to the employees, which is completely the opposite of what we're trying to do.
0: Well, and also one of the things that was bothersome for us is this is, as you know, it's a voluntary system right now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we always joke in the rest of the world, no good deed goes unpunished. But if you look at a lot of these cases, the plan sponsors just left like this. Like, I don't know what to do because um, one of, I won't say my favorite, but a very disturbing case was when they claimed that $35 per year for the administrative fees was excessive. Mm Now, no, no, basis for that, no reason for that, no benchmarking, just saying $35 is too much. Well, then the answer came back, and the plan said, Well, actually, no, we only charge <laughs> 30. And crazy. what's even more bothersome from that is as you know, plans are required to give that disclosure four times a year to participants. So the plaintiff should have had they had that information. Yet right. They're claiming that it was overcharging, but it's really not. And so they put all of this in front of a court to make it look very confusing. And then what is a plan sponsor supposed to do? And another thing that was, is very difficult, we're seeing a lot of plan sponsors, you'll have one case that say will say, oh, you breached your fiduciary duty because you um, invested in a CIT, a collective investment trust. And then the very next case is, oh, you breached your fiduciary duty because you didn't invest in a collective right. investment trust. You breach your fiduciary duty because you had an index fund. You breach your fiduciary duty because you had a managed And if there's any type of investment, any type of people have been sued over.
1: So, yeah, absolutely.
0: What we're trying to get to the courts is unfortunately what happens in the United States, a very big country. And so these judges, one judge might see one, one judge might send, and they don't realize everything that's going on around the United States. And so our what we're trying to do is educate the courts mm-hmm. of what's really happening outside of their courtroom and showing the nationwide problem and the bigger picture problem with this.
1: Yeah. One of the things that's interesting about these cases is you. Sometimes I read these and I say, "Oh my goodness, how can a company of that size have made such a big mistake?" I mean, the you know certain share class issues and and all of that. And but now we've gone past the point where, like you said, they can be a little bit ridiculous with some of the things that they bring up. But what can this? What can the small businesses? You know, somebody who's watching this who has you know ten employees. Is there anything they can do to? You know, it's not likely they're going to have one of these big ERISA cases, but um, is there anything they should be doing or should be looking at to to help make, give their plan a a better outlook?
0: Well, definitely. Is We always just say, don't, don't disregard, like, make sure you have an investment policy strategy. And also one of the things that we try to say is ERISA is about process. And that is one of the things that we're fighting in these cases is, even like you said, sometimes you'll read these you're like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe they did this. Arrest is not based on hindsight, because if it were based on hindsight and you had the best investment, well, you probably wouldn't need to be an Arrested fiduciary. You could be doing something else if you could pick the best investment all the time. Yeah. So what we say is make sure you have that process down. Make sure you document what you're doing. And if you don't have the ability to do it, which many small employers don't. That's why we go back to what I said at the very beginning. It takes an entire community to build a retirement plan. Mm -hmm. Is that I don't expect you, if you're building widgets, to know what the best investment strategy is. But you can go out and find someone who will do that for you. And making sure you document what you did, you document what your choices were, and you document what either what you went through or what someone else went through and i do think another thing that we're seeing is that you know some with the association retirement plans and we also see with the peps so if you feel that you can't do it i think now is one of the best times especially for small employers that there's so many more options available than say 10 or 15 years ago
1: Right. I agree. And we talk PEPs, we're talking about pooled employer plans. Yes. I know our, <laughs> our industry is so caught up in in jargon. Sometimes we forget that people might not know peps, what that is. What's <laughs> I know. Yeah. MEPS, PEPs, Simple Steps. Right. That's so many options out there. Um, and yeah, the ability of, of employers to band together and have some sort of continuity across their plans. Um is definitely an advantage for for certain small businesses of certain size and and with the with the Peps being able to avoid audits and and things like that once they get over that hundred employee threshold can be can be helpful. What is the the u s. chamber or how about even local chambers? what can they do to sort of lead this discussion? Sometimes local chambers might be concerned about overstepping or concerned about their fiduciary liability or responsibility. Is there anything they can do from an informational standpoint?
0: Well, one of the things, I mean, what we do, obviously, we have our amicus programs going on. We also, I do quite a bit, as you know, do quite a bit of advocacy on behalf, but I would also suggest the Department of Labor actually has some very good information, uh, especially for small employers, of what is your fiduciary responsibility, how to even choose a plan. Um, The Internal Revenue Service, surprisingly, has all of the information, and unfortunately, it doesn't get out very much. So one of the things that we encourage uh, local chambers to do if somebody does have a question, that's a great place to start, is by right. directing people to the Department of Labor, directing them to the IRS, because I do know even for a small employer, like you just said, it's like, do I do a SEP? A MET, you know, what do I do? And there are there's pages specific for small employers.
1: Yeah, that that really is a good point. There is a lot of great content out there from, from Department of Labor, from the IRS in terms of how to manage your plan, and and even from the SEC on how to control fees and why fees matter. So there is a lot of good content out there. So even pushing somebody in the, in that direction. Um, also, you know, we, we sometimes like to beat up on the IRS and, and the government for obvious reasons, but they've done a lot of things over the last two or three years to make these programs. When you look at some of the tax credits and, and as we've talked about association retirement plans, perhaps they've really done a lot over the last three years to help small businesses.
0: Uh, yeah. And most recently they did come out with some more guidance that um, it's proposed rules, but some of it, as you may recall, the one bad apple rule. Mm -hmm. which was an impediment for many of the multiple employer plans that if one person kind of messed up, then everybody within the plan messed up, which just wasn't a good rule. I mean, that just doesn't Mm -hmm. make sense as why should one person ruin it for everyone. So I think in in that ways, they're really taking steps and going forward to try to make it easier for Well, in some ways, I mean, there are other things that they're doing that we are providing comments and we want to make it easier. But I think that is the first place to start looking. And
1: also, the industry industry itself has done a a really good job as far as increasing technology and and lowering fees. I mean, the the amount of downhill pressure on fees has been tremendous over the last decade or so, really since the fee disclosure acts and a lot of that stuff.
0: Well, and another thing, I think it has just become easier to have a plan because it's easier to move money. I was at a conference yesterday, and one of the things they're just talking about is it's just data. Hmm. And, you know, back in the day where you had to physically move the money from the payroll over there, you know, those days are gone. So now even just setting up a plan for one or two employees is much easier than it ever could be.
1: Right. And from a feature standpoint, I mean, 20 years ago or even 10 years ago, if you had 20 employers or left, you were probably stuck in a really expensive plan that wasn't great for your employees. But now, I mean, if you've got, you know, five, 10 employees, you can you can have as good a plan as the as the Fortune 500 company. You can really get down to the most least expensive share classes and all those same features, auto enrollment, auto escalate, they're all available right down to small businesses. And that's what's exciting for me, is there's no there's no difference between a five person plan and a 50,000 person plan really at this point.
0: Yeah, but it just takes the effort to go and do that. And again, that's one of the things that we recognize. And I think one of the things the local chambers can do is even just that explanation of, don't get me wrong, setting up a retirement plan can be difficult, it can it has its ups, it has its down, but the importance that you get for yourself and for your employees mm-hmm. is magnified by the effort that it takes, but you just have to get over that first step of thinking, oh, well, only the large employers can do it. And getting over that first step, I think is the most important step.
1: And and with those with those those briefs that you filed, what what's the expected outcome there? What do you think what do you what are you looking to have accomplished by filing those?
0: Well, one of the things that we're looking, obviously, is, I don't, another thing, I don't think people understand how expensive litigation is, Hmm. that um, this doesn't come cheap, and this is not cheap for us to do either, but it's something we really, you know, believe in to help our members, and we're hoping that it will slow down, if not put an end to some of these cases, when the judges see the bigger picture of what's happening. And that I did analysis of some of a few of the cases and most of these cases are settling, which is unfortunate, because the more these cases settle, the more plaintiffs bring them on. Mm -hmm. Because if I can just bring a case and within a year I settle and in attorney's fees, I get one point three million dollars, which in one case, when I did the math on it, even being generous, it translated that settlement amount translated to twenty two dollars per participant and the attorney's fees were over 1.3 million. Yeah. So what we're hoping is to educate the judiciary so that these cases can be dismissed very early on, instead of being like that case that I told you about that went on for 17 years, Yeah, um, that is what we don't want. But we want, and we also want judges to be able, we wanna be able to protect fiduciaries because we want to encourage people to set up plans ultimately.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. And part of it is that discretion that you have in setting up your plan, that there is no set fee, that the plaintiffs try to make it very black and white to say it only costs $30, it only costs $25 for administrative fees. But that's not true because administrators, it depends on what you buy. That if I buy just pure administrative services, it may only be 25, it may only be 30 but what if I want to buy education? What if I want to buy investment services? What if I want to buy compliance services? And we don't want to discourage employers from buying services and including services that would be very good for their participants. And instead just going to that bare bone service that we do know, and I'm sure, Ryan, I'm sure you've seen this in in your practice. It's really confusing to invest Mm -hmm. as an individual that You see, even if you just see 10, you're like, well, which 10 should I pick? How should I do it? So we really want to encourage employers to include services such as investment services that would help their participants make better use of their plans. Mm
1: -hmm. And one of the the easiest solutions maybe is, is to have employers pay those fees outside of the plan. It makes it a lot cleaner from a fiduciary standpoint if the employer is writing a check and not... Pushing those back to participants, right?
0: Well, but we've also seen the irony of that even in some of these lawsuits where the employer was paying the fees and they were still sued claiming that the fee was too high, even though the employer was paying part of it.
1: Yeah, well, that doesn't. So the employer who paid
0: about 50% of it, so the employee was really only paying, say, like $14. But again, something to think about is money's fungible. Mm So if the employer pays for something here, it may not pay for something there. And right. so that's when you have to try to look at the bigger picture. And I think sometimes those of us who do retirement, we only look at the retirement, but we also have to look at wages, health care, everything. And where do we want our dollars to go?
1: Right. And, and and I've heard employers say, well, if I pay all the 401k fees, my employees are never going to notice it. It's 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 not something they'll see. I'd be better off just giving them a, a 1% raise or something along those lines. There's better things for me to do with with my money that it will get me as the employer more recognition than paying the 401k fees because nobody will notice or appreciate it.
0: Well, we know that they're not even looking at them right now because the fee disclosures that we currently have. Mm-hmm. They're obviously not looking at them when these lawsuits are coming down and they're putting the wrong number on the fee, even though the participant has. I mean, I know when I log on to mine, first thing I do when I pull up my statement, it's it's right there. I know exactly how much I pay in fees.
1: Right. Yeah. And and one of the things I'd like to see personally, if I could sort of wave a magic wand, is the employer fee disclosures are intentionally lengthy, I think, to to some extent. And there's no uniformity. It would be nice to have a, a one pager that every plan needs to have that's maybe even on the employer and the employee side that just says, okay, all in, what are your costs in percentages and dollars uh, and sort of make them uniform across the board. That's one of the things I'd like to see.
0: Well, then we need to work together on this because I actually, know. <laughs> that's one of the things that we're advocating for right now is because, you know, at the chamber, we're not big on mandating more employer disclosure because disclosure costs money. Correct. At the end of the day, it, it's there's no plan administration fairy. She doesn't come in and take care of everything. We wish there were. Yeah. But if we're going to have disclosure, we want it meaningful disclosure. And I think what the one thing that I've seen time and time again with all of these lawsuits is that this is not meaningful disclosure because nobody's reading them. Nobody's understanding them. So, what can we do and how can we work together? Like you said, nobody's going to read 10, 20, 30 pages. They're not even going to read one page. How can we break this down to one paragraph?
1: Right, right. Yeah. Big font. Big font. I know. I know. At least 14 (laughs) point. Come on, we can do it. Especially now. (laughs) Especially now if we can get to, um, you know, so what are your thoughts on electronic delivery on some of these versus? versus paper? How does that factor into um, the ability to read these or the ability to uh, kind of get well, through we are, this stuff?
0: We are, we are definitely very big proponents of a participant should be allowed to get their disclosures how it works best for them. Hmm. We do believe though the default should be electronic because we are trying to keep costs down. So it's ironic on one side, you have all these people screaming because, oh, look at the cost of the plans and then trying to mandate that we do paper disclosures. I have large employers who dedicate about $3 million just for their disclosures for their retirement plan. I said million, that is money that could be going other places. Mm -hmm. It would go back to research, it could go to the employees, it could go wherever you have it. So one of the things that we do like about electronic disclosure is the ability to layer nobody knows what half these terms mean, but we all know that if we're looking on something online and it's underlined it in blue and we click on it, we're going to get a definition. Correct. Or we can take, and I could take that paragraph that gives you the very basics that you need, but embed in it, if you want to dig deeper. Mm-hmm. And so I think we have the technology, but sometimes in, in ERISA world, we're still back in 1974 when it comes to communication. Mm-hmm
1: hundred percent. Yeah. And I think a lot of times when people see things in percentages, it's tough for them to translate in dollars. And sometimes we look at things in in dollars and they may look very high from a percentage standpoint, especially if it's a smaller plan or a newer plan. So having both of them on there and, you know, even if we're sending fee disclosures to em- employers, Make sure that they get it. Maybe there's something they have to log on and and acknowledge mm-hmm. that they that they've seen it at least once a year. That yes, I've read through this. I mean, it might be like the uh, terms of service that we all scroll through, but if we
0: <laughs> do that we don't read.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, round and round we go. But it might be something that that we could at least have them log in and check the box and say, yeah, I look at this, I, I understand that. and you know, at least they've got a record of it. And that certainly wouldn't be that difficult to do from a technology yeah. standpoint.
0: Well, and also, um, I'm also a big proponent of, it, of examples is because sometimes these terms are very confusing. But if I have an example that I can see, I was like, okay, that kind of makes more sense to me now that I have an example of what the percentage means. But I'll also be honest, we could go with you on percentage. There are a number of people who back in the day, remember when we had to do percentage is over of and all of that. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't understand percentages. Yeah. Um, but people do understand examples. So one of the things that we're supporting in you know Secure 2.0 um the new legislation that just we just had the retirement security I always rssa i always forget that what it stands for sorry um there was a provision in there mandated that the department of labor the departments take a look at all of the current disclosures and do an in-depth study bringing the community in on it because, like I said, a lot of these are going back to 1974. So we really back that is let's just take a look at everything because there's a lot of stuff in there that just doesn't. Maybe it was OK in 1974, but it's not OK today.
1: Right. I, I agree with that 100 um, percent. So we're in the middle of, of Secure Act 2.0. So we just passed the House. We're. Um, we're going to the, to the Senate at some point, I've heard some predictions, maybe the summer, maybe it'll be sort of a last minute end of the year thing, like secure where, where do you think it's going from here?
0: If I could predict that I wouldn't have to work for a living, I uh, <laughs> but I, we're seeing progress. I, I've seen a lot more progress than I thought we had a great hearing, um, in the Senate health committee last week. Um, a lot of great ideas, a lot of talk about emergency savings, also talk about disclosures, so right now we like, we call it um, Christmas tree time. So for those of you who don't work on, on Capitol Hill is you'll often get a bill and it has X amount in it. So we have the bill that's in the house, it passed a house. Now the Senate needs to decide what they wanna do. And we call it, sometimes call it a Christmas tree because then people like to hang their own little provisions all over it. So it's like putting ornaments all over that that bill that you had. So that's really the question that's going to come up is know we have heard talk that we talked about earlier will there be emergency savings provisions added on to it we will some things be stripped off will they take some of the ornaments off Um, we are hoping the mandate to provide paper statements will be taken off of there and so i think from now over the summer we're going to see a lot of people talking on the senate side about what provisions because we did have last year portman-cardin they also had their own bill on the senate side that had a lot of things in common with the current house bill. So we probably will see those, but then the question is what else is going to be on there? And that can easily take over the summer to try to work that out.
1: Yeah. How about, how about you personally, or from a chamber perspective, what's your magic wand issue? If you could wave a magic wand, what would you put in retirement policy tomorrow?
0: Ours is more of keeping things out. um, That we have two prong approach to what, what we're looking at is we have the right now because what you see from Secure 2.0, there are a lot of small fixes, and they're good. But it's, and I've even talked to some of the staffers. Is it, it's not going? It's it's not this magic wand that's going to fix uh, retirement insecurity for 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 everyone. It's a good start, but it's it's not like this. We've now fixed it. We never have to go back to it. So one, we want to make sure anything that comes out is encouraging even the tiny fixes, makes sure that it encourages all size employers, large, small, medium. We're really interested in sole proprietors, uh, the self-employed, because we think that that has been a big group that's kind of been left behind. So we want to just make sure everything encourages. We don't want provisions in there that discourage. And some of the provisions that have been talked about, they kind of sound good in a a feel-good sort of way, but they don't have any data backing them, and all they're doing is adding administrative right. burdens. Right. So that is our what we're doing right now. But a bigger picture is what we want to do is step back and look at our entire retirement system. Mm-hmm. And instead of just looking at it private sector, public sector, looking at it all together of how do employer plans work with social security, with private savings. Because we looked at all that about 100 years ago, and we haven't really revisited it yet. And so over the next few years, our project will be, instead of like taking a look at everything through the lens of just the tax code, mm-hmm. let's think about what retirement security for Americans should be, what we want it to be, then how do we get there through both the employer, the employee, and the government?
1: Right. And you bring up a really interesting point about self-employed or part-time or even the the phrase gig economy and that type of thing. One of the things I hear sometimes from small businesses are, well, I don't need a retirement plan because some of my team, they don't they don't make a lot of money or it's not something they'd be interested in. But what the employer doesn't understand sometimes is this person might be working two or three different jobs or they might be making widgets at home and selling them on Etsy or something like that. Mm-hmm. And they don't this might be the job that could be their retirement savings. So small business might roll out a program and that person that's only maybe just making $5,000 a year there, maybe they take that whole thing and put it into their retirement plan, or maybe they have a a spouse that makes a lot of money and they're working for savings. So I think that's a misconception that we need to work with small businesses too, to make them understand that there's other ways that their employees might be earning income. Oh,
0: definitely. And working with small employers because there have been some studies out there uh Pew did a very good some good studies where there's kind of a the employees and employers are talking over each other and one of the things that we really want to encourage is especially for the smaller employers is sit down it's a lot easier if you have 5 or 10 employees versus if you have you know 10,000 mm-hmm. but sit down with your employees and actually just ask them what what would they like
1: mm-hmm. Right, right, and a lot of times they don't even know what's available. So the employer might say, "Well, I've asked them, and they don't really want a retirement plan." Well, nobody really wants a retirement plan. Nobody <laughs> wants. To, nobody wants their paycheck to suddenly be three percent less next week. So, um, but yeah, the, uh, educating your employees on why it's important, and certainly automatic enrollment, automatic increase, all of those things can help along the way.
0: Mm-hmm, definitely, but so where we pick- want to stand to, is to make sure that employers have that flexibility and are not mandated to do certain things because one of the things that we do worry about is we are huge proponents of automatic enrollment. Absolutely. Inertia does wonders, but it doesn't work for all employers. And it's we wanna make sure that there's not this one size fits all approach from Congress or through the administration because if you've seen one plan, you've seen one plan that every employer is going to have different needs. It, large employers have different needs from other large employers. Large employers have different needs from small employers. So let's just give the tools for employers to be able to do what's right for their own employees.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, and I'd love to see something that helps employers out with new employees. A lot of times there's that six months waiting period or one year waiting period because they wanna make sure the employee sticks. But at the same time, they're missing out on a year of savings potentially. So I'd like to see something kind of help fill that gap that doesn't burden the employers, but still make something available to those employees.
0: Right. And that's definitely the things that we're working on. But I think a lot of that also comes with educating the employer mm-hmm. of so what they may leave, but, or they may stay if you think about it, mm-hmm. they may stay because look, I have this emergency savings account my employer just set up Mm -hmm. for me. I have this retirement plan that my employer set up. If I go over there, I'm not gonna have that. So don't look at it in terms of, I don't wanna do this because they're gonna leave. Look at it in terms of, I'm gonna do this to help them stay.
1: Right. And maybe they left because they thought the employer didn't care about them. They weren't making these benefits right. available. So um so so big picture US chamber. Folks who might not be familiar with the US chamber, what is it that the US Chamber does? It looked like you changed your colors or logo. Is that pretty? We did. Okay. I'm so All glad you right. noticed so. that.
0: I think yeah, they are awesome. Yeah. Well,
1: like um, we decided
0: we have been around for over a hundred years. Um, mm-hmm. and we decided we we just gave our building a new facelift. Mm-hmm. Uh it was and it, it, it is gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. So anybody who comes to Washington, D.C., please walk past 1615 at H Street. It's right across from the White House. so You can't miss it. Uh, what we are, we are the nation's largest uh, lobbying organization on behalf of businesses and on um, businesses of all sizes. And I think that's one thing that sometimes people forget that, like, oh, it's just for the big businesses. Nope. We have members from sole practitioners to Ten thousand employees and you know what all of our members are equally as important no matter what the size is is that we're here to advocate on behalf of businesses because we believe in innovation and we believe in businesses because if you don't have employers you don't have employees and if you don't have employees you don't have employers it kind of works that way so we want to see policies that work to encourage employers and help employers stay employed
1: okay and I know you've put out a lot of great content. I was looking at your your YouTube channel. You recently did a, a program on ESG, which has been a hot topic, of course, not just investing, but in the retirement plan space. Do you guys have a particular view on ESG and in being involved in retirement plans?
0: Our view is, and this is where I think there's a lot of confusion on this, is it actually goes back to 1994. On a very small issue, then people kind of Blew it out of proportion. But if you look at our most recent comment letters that, that I drafted on this topic is, we believe in letting plan fiduciaries be plan fiduciaries. You are appointed as a fiduciary. You have a job. It's not for the government to tell you what you should and should not invest in. That's not how ERISA works. ERISA, you must employ a prudent process. And so if through your process, you determine X investment is prudent, I personally don't care what that is. That's right. not my job. My job is not here. I'm, I'm not in an a reciditiary and I don't play one on TV. But what we want to do is making it easier, not put up hurdles. Another issue that did come up for us quite a bit is there are people who are pro-ESG, anti-ESG, and I, I, I am completely neutral on it. I am what is best for, what works the best for the plan. And for example, if you have, participants who want a particular investment option. So you have your standard menu over here. And then if you have a number of participants who want an environmental option, so you go ahead and you have an option, maybe a mutual fund or an ETF that is geared more toward that, you still have an obligation to prudently select it. You can't just randomly close your eyes and be like, I want this fund." no, you as a fiduciary have to look, make sure it's prudent. If it's not prudent, you're not going to put it in there.
1: Correct. Yeah. And I think there was a time when folks thought that if you were investing along those lines, you could potentially be sacrificing something on the return front. I don't think that's the case anymore. Um, And we said ESG without defining it. So I broke one of my own rules about throwing, but you're talking about environmental, social and, and governance issues and and funds that select companies. That's an additional criteria in addition to all the typical criteria that that an investment might might use. And you brought up an interesting point about participants could potentially be motivated to participate in a plan because they see that option on there, especially some of the next generation folks who might be uh, disenchanted with Wall Street or something their parents went through in, in 08 or 09 but if they see something on the list that's maybe more in line with their particular views if that gets them to put away 3% whereas they might not have before I think it's something we need to look at
0: Oh and definitely that's one of the things that we we had worried that there may be a chilling effect for that particular aspect of it and again the fiduciary still must prudently select that type of investment so you're not giving, as you said, you're not giving up on the, you know, having an imprudent investment in there. You still have to make sure it's there. And another thing to, to let our members know is the E, the S and the G are very separate. And it's, I always find it interesting, you know, they've clumped them all together, but nobody's going to invest in something that has bad governance mm-hmm. that right. just as a general investment and also on the defined benefit side, when you're doing that investment, if you do a bad investment as an employer, you have to make up the money in the plan. So there has never been a time where any ERISA fiduciary is going to select something that they knowingly is going to be a bad investment because if it is, you're, it's coming out of your bottom line to put money, you have an obligation to put money back in the plan if you lose money. Mm-hmm.
1: No, I, I agree with that. I mean, we're coming up on 45 minutes. I know you have to put your cape back on and save the the retirement plan. Save world. the retirement well,
0: world. Yes, One comment uh, letter at a time.
1: <laughs> exactly. You got to get into your into your phone booth. Remember those things? Get in your phone booth and put on your superhero costume. Is there anything else we uh, you want to touch on, either from a U.S. Chamber perspective or anything you're doing in retirement no, I policy think, that we
0: missed? I think this is doing great and we really look forward to keeping up the partnership with you.
1: All right. Sounds good. Thank you, Chantal. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you. Have a great day. Bye-bye.